Good morning, and welcome to Crossbridge, everyone. My name is Jordan. I am the online pastor here, and, you know, I love March, and I love March for two reasons. First is, for those of us who struggle with mental health battles, March, when you feel that first 50-degree-plus day with the sunshine, you walk outside, snow is gone, it feels like a new drug. Not that I know what that tastes like either, but it feels so good, and so uh, I love March for that first reason. The second reason, who participates at all in March Madness? Yeah, yeah, and if you're in the chat, you can put a, an emoji in there as well, but um, this March Madness has been special because for those who uh, follow it know that last year was taken from us. It was one of the first things that, you know, really let us know COVID was real and coming and here and that our state, our country, our world was going to be struggling when we had to cancel March Madness. And so March Madness is back, and it, for those who aren't aware, um, it is a 64 or 68, 64 teams make it, 68 compete at the beginning, I believe. Keegan, let me know, yes. Yep, Keegan's letting me know, yes. And so it's a tournament, basketball tournament, and right now they're all in Indianapolis. And this year has been interesting um, and maybe it's just because the last two years we haven't had any basketball tournaments that we were able to enjoy. But uh, this year feels like there were a ton of ups- upsets in the first round. Um, and for those Buckeye fans, any Buckeye fans? Yeah, good. Very good. 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 Michigan fans only here. Purdue fans, any Purdue fans out there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, good. They lost too, unfortunately. Sorry, Bruce. Um, and so all of those things. But this is, this is my favorite month of the year because we get to enjoy the sunshine again and we get to enjoy basketball. And for me, the last 24 hours were pretty great um, because I love March Madness. And so I woke up yesterday at 8 a.m. and then Marissa and I took the dog for a walk at 9. We went and ran a bunch of errands, got some new clothes, some grocery shopping done, had lunch, came back, and then Marissa went to spend the day with her mother. And from about 1 o'clock until 11 o'clock when I went to bed, I was watching basketball, and then also I was a good husband. I did some dishes and some laundry, but I was watching basketball while Marissa was gone the whole day, um, and it was just a blast for me to be able to sit on the couch and uh, watch one of my favorite uh, sports again. And that was my last 24 hours. I woke up this morning. I had a, a protein bar. I had my water, which is over there, and then I came to, you know, just just a uh, teach a little bit. And so it's been a great day, a great 24 hours. For Jesus, though, what we're going to be looking at for the next two weeks are his final 24 hours that were a little bit different than mine, a little bit different than yours probably, even if you didn't watch basketball, where Jesus, prior to being crucified, murdered one of the most excruciating deaths that you can experience. Jesus's final 24 hours on earth prior to that experience were filled with so much pain, so much doubt, discouragement, emotional trauma, physical trauma, and then ultimately giving his life up for us. And I'm excited. The next two weeks, I have the privilege of walking us through the final 24 hours of Jesus' life before he is crucified. Preparing our hearts for Easter. You see, here in the Western culture, it's so easy for us to focus on celebration. We cling to hope. We thrive in joy. And in the Eastern part of the world, they actually thrive in lamenting. 
It's something that is very common to their world, common to their nature and their culture. And so whenever they are experiencing suffering, you often find them rejoicing because lament is a part of their joy. And so for the next two weeks, we're not going to be talking about the joy and the celebration of Easter that is right around the corner. While that is in need of being celebrated, there's going to be a time for that in a couple of weeks. Instead, we're going to be spending the next two weeks lamenting, walking through the suffering of Jesus, preparing our hearts, because I truly believe that we can't experience the joy without first walking through the suffering that Jesus did. And trying to place ourselves in those 24 hours where Jesus is beaten emotionally, spiritually, and physically for you and for me. In the last 24 hours that Jesus walked through, we're not going to be able to cover everything because there's so much to unpack. And scholars, even the gospel writers, disagree a little bit on some of the timelines, some of what happens when and where. Today we're going to start off the story and focus strictly on the garden. And we're going to spend the next 20 minutes walking through Jesus' experience in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Garden of Gethsemane is interesting. Matthew calls it, um, writes about the Mount of Olives. And then the other gospel writers write about the Garden of Gethsemane. And they're not the same place. And in fact, the Mount of Olives is the entire mountain. And then the Garden of Gethsemane is at the foot of the mountain. And so Matthew gives us kind of the broader term of everything. Some of the other gospel writers tell the exact location that we believe Jesus was in his most spiritual turmoil. And so if you want to turn with me to Matthew chapter 26, we're going to kick off this series walking through one of the most depressing times for Jesus where he is completely and utterly alone and experiencing some of the most painful memories that he probably exists with today. And so Matthew chapter 26 verse 36 is where we're going to be. And this is what the gospel writer Matthew says. He writes this, Then Jesus came with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. We're going to stop there for a second. So Jesus had just established the new covenant, part of what we weren't able to address today. He just had the last supper, and he establishes the new covenant. He says to his disciples, he says, hey, this blood and this bread, my body is going to be and establish the new covenant for you and for the rest of the world. And through this sacrifice, the old covenant that is found in the Old Testament will be obsolete. We know that from the Hebrew writer. This new covenant is going to be established and all about loving God and loving people. And it's not going to be a works-based righteousness. It's going to be a faith and grace-based righteousness where because of the grace that God gives us, we are now made one. 
And so that happens prior to this. Jesus then takes his 11 remaining disciples because, spoiler alert, Judas goes off to betray Jesus. And we're going to see that part of the story for those who are hearing this for the first time in just a second. Jesus takes his 11 remaining disciples and they go to the Mount of Olives. And then he takes his three best friends, James, John of Zebedee, and then Peter, his best disciples. And he takes them further into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And one of the other uh, gospel writers, I believe it is Luke, says that this would have been a common place for Jesus to go pray. Because he writes it in a way, he says, Jesus once again goes to the Mount of Olives to pray. And so this was a common battle place for Jesus to go and spend time with God. And actually, when I woke up this morning um, and I walked through the version story of the day, it was cool. The verse of the day was pray ceasingly, pray earnestly, pray without hesitation. And so Jesus gets down and he starts praying with the Lord. And uh, the NRSV, which is the translation of the Bible that a lot of scholars use to translate in English or a lot of colleges use when studying, says that Jesus threw himself on the ground. He was experiencing so much trauma and pain and suffering that he threw himself on the ground. He didn't just go onto his knees to pray. It wasn't a calm type of prayer. And I'm sure that those of us who have experienced trauma or loss or grief or pain know what that feels like to literally throw ourselves on the ground in prayer for Jesus, crying out. I actually believe that this is one of the only moments that we witness Jesus being fully human throughout the Gospels. We have plenty of evidence of the miracles that Jesus does being fully God. We have plenty of evidence of Jesus being full of spirit, full of grace, full of truth, full of the, uh, the Holy Ghost of God the Father. But we don't get many glimpses of Jesus' humanity until the garden where Jesus is experiencing the full pain and turmoil and suffering of what is to come in his final 24 hours. You see, the Romans, they perfected the art of crucifixion. In fact, they perfected the art of torture. Scholars would argue that crucifixion, to die by that of the cross, is one of the most painful deaths you can experience. Because as your body has already been whipped and is bleeding and scarred up, the only way to breathe on the cross is to step up on the stool that they give you, scraping your back on the wood behind you. Take a breath, and then go back down as you suffocate for 30 to 45 more seconds before you can have the energy to go back up again. Most individuals last up to 8 to 10 hours on the cross before their body gives up. And so Jesus, knowing this is coming, throws himself on the ground. says, I am troubled to the point of death. We get a glimpse of his humanity. Let's carry on. Verse 40, this is what the gospel writer Matthew says. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. 
When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. And then verse 50, so powerful. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. Do what you came for, friend. Then the man stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. Do what you came for, friend. See, Jesus goes back after he finds his disciples who had fallen asleep. And so if you ever feel unqualified to do the work of Jesus, just know that right before Jesus dies, he asks his disciples to stay up and pray for them. Pray for him, and they don't fall asleep once, not twice, but three times. Some of us don't find that too hard to believe because we're the same way. But Jesus is getting frustrated because he is truly, completely, and utterly alone in the Spirit. And he says to his disciple Peter, he says, hey, the Spirit is willing. I'm willing to go through with the sacrifice, but the flesh is weak. It brings me back to when Jesus is having this encounter with the man, and the man says, hey, God, Jesus, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Those two statements I resonate with so much. God, I do believe that what you can do can happen, but help me overcome my unbelief. Or as Jesus says, the Spirit is willing. I am willing to go through and hear whatever you call me to do, Jesus. But the flesh when it becomes external, it's so weak. So Jesus goes back and he prays again. He comes back, finds his disciples still asleep. And after the third time, he says, rise up, my betrayer is here. The one that you know, actually, he's been walking with us for the last 12 years. He's been handling our finances. He's been our accountant. He's been our individual who's been making sure we got enough money in the budget to keep going. Yeah, Judas, that guy, he's here to betray me. Judas comes to his friend, gives him a kiss, which in their culture was a sign of respect, and betrays the Messiah. And then Jesus' powerful line is this. He says, do what you came for, friend. And that stuck out to me. And so I looked up the Greek word for friend that is used in this translation. And the Greek word for friend used here is hetairas, hetairas. And it's only used three times in the entire New Testament. All three times used by Jesus in an intimate setting, the first two of which were used in parables to try to make a larger point. This time is used when describing someone close to him. And the definition, the literal translation of this word is my good friend. My partner, someone I am close with. And when I see this, when I read this, and I know that Jesus is looking at his best friend, betraying him to the hands of sinners, 
to be murdered, to be crucified. And he still has the grace and the patience and the peace to be able to say, hey, I still love you. Even though you are about to betray me to the hands of sinners, I still care so much about you. And it brings up this truth. You can't outsend the love of God. You can't outrun the love of God. The love of God is eternal for you. There is absolutely nothing you could ever do that could separate you from the love of Christ. And that is proven, if you had any doubts about that up until this point, that is proven in this moment where Jesus looks at one of his best friends who is literally going to betray him for 30 pieces of silver and says, hey, you're still my good, intimate friend. I care so deeply about you. I've actually often wondered, I think one of the most powerful things that could have happened is if Judas wouldn't have taken his life after betraying Jesus, spoiler alert, for Jesus to come back resurrected, I imagine one of the first things he would have said is, where's Judas? Where's the one who betrayed me? I gotta let him know that I'm back, I love him, I'm here for him, and I'm ready for him to take that next step finally. And so if you're struggling today, see, this, this wasn't on the outline. I told James, or was running my slides, I said, hey, I might just go off on a rabbit trail, just the Holy Spirit. And anyone who's run my slides knows that. And so, you know, this is one of those moments. But if you are running today, if you have experienced any time of pain or tomorrow, whether it's in the last 24 hours of the last life, and you're here just to experience some sort of community, I want you to know today that Jesus is waiting to come back into your life and say, where's Judas? Because there's nothing that he or she could have done that would stop my love for you. Let's pick up the story in verse 51. This is what Matthew writes. It says this, With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant. See, Matthew doesn't throw his disciple's brother under the bus. John does, which is hilarious. And so John says, Peter drew out the sword and cut off the ear. Matthew's trying to hide it a little bit because we put Peter on a pedestal. And so Matthew writes, you know, it was just Jesus, one of Jesus' companions. John says it was Peter who did it. Um, and so he struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Verse 52, put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then this part just breaks my heart. Then all of his disciples deserted and fled. All of his closest companions deserted him and fled. And in this moment, in the garden, Jesus was completely and utterly alone. 
Those of you students who have been bullied or who have been going through anxiety or depression secretly where you haven't let your friends know or your parents know or you're ashamed of some of your struggles or addictions, you know what that feels like, the feeling completely and utterly alone, even if the way that you're living in your schools or on your sports teams shows differently. You know that complete emptiness. Those of us in the workplace who are struggling with financially or those of us who have lost loved ones know what that feels like, that complete and utterly alone. But what if it was your best friends who are there with you who run away? I feel like that would be even harder. And so as we wrap up today, here's three takeaways that I want us to walk through at the garden. Because this isn't just stories about Jesus' suffering. Again, I want us to get into that situation and really try to walk away with something today. How can I take next steps? What can I learn from Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? And the first one is this, that God is not the absence of suffering, but the presence within it. God is not the absence of suffering, but the presence within it. And here's why this is so important. You see, Peter writes about this. Paul writes about this in his letter to the Roman church, actually multiple times throughout all of his letters. Peter and Paul, uh, Peter being, again, one of his closest friends, his disciples, writes and says this. He says, hey, you're not going to be able to walk through this life without experiencing and enduring suffering. In fact, the entire first Peter letter that you can see in the New Testament is filled with this message. That you are here to experience suffering. And then 1 Peter 5, 7 says, But hey, cast all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That while you are experiencing the suffering, cast all of those back onto God and say, God, I am living in this. And we get this message from the garden because Jesus, after he throws himself on the ground, asks God to take it away. We see that humanity from Jesus saying, hey, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Can you take away my cup? Can you take away the suffering? The gospel writer Luke, though, provides a special detail that Matthew doesn't. Luke chapter 22, verse 43. Luke writes that God then sends an angel to comfort Jesus in that moment. I think that's a crucial detail. God is not the absence of suffering. If you're here to abandon or avoid all suffering, you're in the wrong place. But even if you choose the secular life, you're not going to be void of suffering. You see, the difference between the secular world and the Christian world when it comes to suffering is that we have a presence within ours. We place our hope in something greater than ourselves. God is not the absence of suffering, but the presence within it. That's the first takeaway. The second takeaway is this, is that sometimes God says no, and sometimes God says yes. Sometimes God says no when we are crying out, literally throwing ourselves on the ground, crying out to God for him to resurrect our loved one who is passing away. Sometimes God says no when we've been diagnosed with an illness that is incurable. Sometimes God says no when there is a natural disaster, a pandemic. Sometimes God says no when you get laid off from your job or the bills aren't coming through. And you associate the no with God not being good. But that's not the case. 
Because God said no to Jesus. God said, hey, nobody else can take this cup, but in order to experience the full goodness, I need you to fulfill this and take this cup of suffering. But part of that, I also believe that sometimes God says yes to our prayers, to our specific asks. And we know this because Jesus had the courage to ask in the first place. Jesus asked God to reconsider. Moses asked God to reconsider in Exodus when God says, you know what, I'm going to go down the mountain, I'm going to strike everybody down because they're ticking me off again just like in Noah's days. And Moses says, hey, counteroffer, don't kill them, don't kill me, and let's go another route, maybe some grace. And God says, you know what, all right, let's establish a covenant. Let's do this. Let's really do this. Third takeaway is this. And this is, I believe, the most important. The kingdom of God grows through the garden. The kingdom of God grows through the garden. I want to close with this final thought. You can't experience the fullness of the kingdom of God and what God has in store for you without having a garden-like experience. Your faith, true faith, cannot be exponentially different for the kingdom of God until you throw yourself on the ground with God in perfect unity, in perfect suffering, saying, God, I can't stand what I'm going through. So many of us want to live in comfort, want to hold on to our tree and just say, you know what? My balance beam, you know what? I'm just going to stay right here. Everybody else is going over there doing their thing. See, I got real comfortable because I was on the bench a lot in sports. And so I just, you know, like whenever, if coach called my name, I was going to be dead. But, you know, I just stayed on the sideline. I just stayed right there. And I'm just cool watching all the starters do their thing. And this is what Jesus says. This is what Jesus does. Say, hey, you can't experience the fullness of God without experiencing the fullness of garden. And this is why Paul, when writing the, to the letter, the letter to the church in Ephesus, says, put on the full armor of God. Because if you're going to go into the battlefield, you can't just hide behind the shield. And Jesus understood this. Jesus picked up his cross, walked about a mile to be crucified, when he very easily could have gotten off the cross. Three takeaways. The first, so powerful. And as I, as I reflect and as I wonder about that moment when uh, Jesus is literally begging for God. And he's feeling the absence. But in that first takeaway, the absence. And God is not the absence of our serving, the presence within it. I've got to relate to Jesus in some way. The second, God sometimes says no, but God also sometimes says yes. And then the third, kingdom of God cannot grow without the garden. This is a very pivotal point of Jesus' ministry. And so here's your next step for this week. I want you to be praying. I want you to truly be lamenting, be thinking, and what areas of my life am I trying to cling to comfort? Maybe I'm upset when God says no. Maybe I'm upset when I'm having to endure the suffering. Maybe I'm upset when I have garden-like experiences. But the reality is we shouldn't be upset in those moments. We should be rejoicing because God is trusting us with the cross. 
Every time that you experience some form of adversity, God is trusting you with the cross. And you should be like, game on! Every time. Because God has a specific mission for you to complete. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, you're so good. You're so God. You are not the absence of suffering, but the presence within it. You are Sometimes a God who says no and sometimes a God who says yes. And most importantly, God, you know and establish this rule that the garden cannot grow unless there is some form of adversity. And so, Heavenly Father, God, I give this message to you. I'm grateful for your words. And I'm grateful for the suffering you've let me experience. I pray, Heavenly Father, God, that you walk, that we feel your presence as you are already walking with us today. In your name I pray, amen.